right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Gunzelcast on a very busy Gunzelman's Tavern right here on a Thursday night. And today is October 14th. I'm joined with Jeremy Demry, Carmen Angelo, and our very special guest, Phil Bova. Phil Bova had an illustrious career as an NCAA Division I referee, among many, many other things. His new book, Throwing Back the Chair, and we're going to talk about basketball, baseball, and sportsmanship. All tonight, right here on the Gunzelcast. First of all, let me welcome Phil. How you doing? Welcome. Thank you so much. Nice to be here tonight, Ray. Phil, it's an honor to have you. You were on my radio program before, and uh, what a pleasure that was. Carmen, how you doing? Doing well. Any better, I'd be triplets. I can't complain. <laughs> and, and of course, Jeremy. Jeremy Demery, our producer and director. Jeremy needs a microphone. Oh, he's got one. Uh, he, he has it. It's okay. Oh, all right. I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. All right. Hey, Carmen, you took the wrong microphone. No, it's all right. Okay. All right. Well, we're fine. I got to stretch out. I can't sit there. I know that, Carmen. Yeah, two knee surgeries. I got to be able to stretch my legs. Welcome to my world, Carmen. You know what? It's crazy because we were just talking about a true patriot, a true American hero in Travis Mills. Absolutely. Who was a quadruple amputee, and I'm moaning about two knee surgeries. Two knee surgeries, I'm exactly. just going to shut my mouth because I feel like a total idiot now. Well, well Phil, you have all the stories, and you're going to enlighten us. And first of all, how did you begin the world of officiating? I mean, what got you interested in doing that? Well, I was fortunate to be a, a, a basketball, football, and baseball player at Cleveland West High School. Right. And I never, never thought I would be a, a basketball official or any kind of official for that matter. And in my book, uh, the first chapter is Thank You, Cleveland Browns. And we were we were at a, a, a basketball game out in uh, Berea and I was going through school and they had a big a fundraiser to raise money for the school. And they were playing the Cleveland Browns uh Johnson, uh, some of the great players that used to play for the Browns, and one of the officials went down, and oh, they were no. looking. Yeah, and they were looking for a referee, and they went through the stands. They had a, the microphone on. Can someone help us? So I raised my hand. They go, "Who are you?" I says, "I'm Phil Bovin." Did you have a referee before? I says, "No, sir, I haven't." But I do know one thing: if somebody gets knocked in their rear end, it's a foul. I says, "Put the shirt on." So for two hours later, I got screamed and yelled at, and. Cleveland Browns were, that was my, my my claim to fame, so to speak. What was the hardest thing about, you know, you put the whistle in your mouth, you start running up and down the court. What's the hardest thing to do, I mean, like in that process? It, for that night, I, I was afraid that I was going to get run over by the Cleveland Browns. And so there's so darn big Walter Johnson and Ray Renfro, some of the great wow. players that, that, that were involved at that time. But the biggest thing was just try to control the game. I know it was a fundraiser. Uh, and a lot of things we kind of let go so the guys could do their thing, sure. so to speak, you know. Yeah. But it was a it was a challenge, and I, I said, you know, this is something I think I, I, I want to try to take to the next level, so I was fortunate to do that. What don't you like about officiating? Uh, well, what don't I like about officiating? Uh, today, the way the officiating is, it's extremely difficult because of the commitment that the referees have to make. It's, uh, it's usually uh, a situation where... You to get to the next level, you have to officiate a lot of ball games so you get a feel for that level. No, it's politics too. Well, that's another story. Yeah, that that plays a big part. As you move up the, if you as you move up the uh, the ladder, it certainly plays a big part, particularly at the Division One level, without question. So, Carmen, actually, if Coach Bowman and I go back a long, long time, and 
One thing I want to know is the relationship between Gene Cady and Robert Montgomery Knight. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. And I know you're a big uh, Bloomington fan, a big Bobby Knight fan. Those two guys, believe it or not, Carmen, are thicker than thieves. Are they really? Oh, yeah. They have great respect for each other. When you think of college basketball, there's two states that you think of. You think of Kentucky and you think of Indiana. And there's no bigger rivalry than Indiana-Purdue. And I was blessed to work that game buku times. But they they put that sport jacket on and get in front of 17,000 people, whether it be at Indiana or at Purdue, they're ready to rock and roll. So they play the crowd. And for many years, they thought, no, there's no way these guys get along. They play golf together. They're in the same state. But they respect how tough it is to get to that level. So uh, the rivalry is second to none. That's awesome. How was Gene Cady to you? Well, Gene Cady was great to be, to be honest with you, Carmen. I was fortunate to have a basketball referee school for 25 years. And that's in the book that we'll talk about a little bit later. And I was honored to have several major college basketball coaches fly in and be with me for the whole day with my referees, 75 that came from all across the country. And who do you think was one of them? Gene Cady. And here's the best part, Carmen. During the game, the vernaculars that came out of Cady's mouth was unbelievable. He didn't say boo during the time he was at the camp. I said, wait a minute, what is it with you? Come on, let me hear you. Conversely, Bobby Knight, forget about it. It's in this book, and yes. you're going to laugh your butt off what he didn't do. And that three hours that he stayed at my referee's camp was unbelievable. So Katie's the best, Knight's the best, and they're both doing well, by the way. Okay, good. Now, let me ask you, Ray, do you care if I continue? Well, yeah, I got a question, but go oh. ahead. Go ahead. Um, obviously, you were in the Big Ten all those years. Did you ever have a chance to work games with Louis Carnesecca or Rolly? Oh, my goodness. Rowley Massimino, God rest his soul, and Lou Carnesecca. Now, Lou Carnesecca was in the Big East. Yeah. Yeah. But my man Rowley, he came, of course, you know, of course, they, when they won the national championship. Villanova. And Villanova, exactly. Right. Harold right. Jensen, and they shot 76% as a team. <laughs> Harold Jensen couldn't miss. That's right. Yeah, That's the exactly. little white shooting guard. But he comes to Cleveland State, and two paisanos got together. I said, let me tell you something, Raleigh. I love you like a brother, but you're not getting one call, so don't start with me. Yes. You know. Yeah. So we had a great relationship, and I worked his scrimmage, and he start, he start, you cursing me in Italian. I said, I know exactly what it is, so don't start with me. You know. So we had a lot of laughs, but... I did work his games a couple of times, but I had the utmost respect for him. Yeah, he lived right down the street here in Valley Forge. Except, oh, is that, is that, that's yeah. exactly, yeah, I heard about that. That's great. Yeah, he was an absolute icon. Did you think he had a real chance to turn that program around? Or do you think it was just too big of a mountain to climb? Well, it, it's, you know, it's a difficult situation. It, it's, all about, it's all about recruiting, Ray. And uh, today, if you're playing high school sports, let alone college sports, you're a special athlete because of all the temptations around you. You have to really be focused today. When we were in school, we played the football, the basketball, the baseball. Today, if you're going to go to that level, you got to zero in on one sport, maybe two, and you've got to work 12 months a year. So recruiting is extremely difficult in some of these areas. And Unfortunately, Cleveland has, we have great tradition. Yeah. I can't understand why we, you know, we can't get the better of uh, the better of kids that we do. But Cleveland State's certainly on the uprise, and, and that's good to see. You know, yeah. I mean, there has been so much talent here locally. I just go back to that, 
that Latin team with Bobby Lowry and Colin Irish, and that's a team that, in my opinion, would have beaten LeBron's St. V teams. I agree with you. See, you go back in the history that we have together, and there were some great high school, let alone collegiate athletes, that maybe never got the chance to do what we've been able to do today. Right. right. Now, some of the great high school talent that you guys saw along the way, um, Sam Clark, Clancy Jr. Well, Sam Clancy, but Clark Kellogg was the best. Well, he was the best. I, You know, I tell kids today, they say LeBron was the greatest player they saw, you know, especially kids that, you know, graduated in the early 2000s. I said, Clark Kellogg, LeBron didn't have a left hand, okay? And LeBron couldn't hit a deep shot. Clark could do it all. He could jump over you. He could dribble with both hands. He was the complete player. Well, I, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, about throwing back the chair, but I picked my all-decade team. My first team, my second team, and my third team. Carmen, guess who's on the first team? Clark Kellogg. Absolutely. Clark Kellogg was, a, a first of all, a gentleman. Yes. He knew the game. He came from a great family. His father and my brother worked together as Cleveland police officers. Okay. And I just had the utmost respect for him, but he took that, that Ohio State basketball team and took it to another level. So he was certainly an icon. And, of course, with the Pacers, if he hadn't got injured, who knows what would have happened. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing about Clark, I'll never forget it. It was 1978. Joe's comes to St. Ed's. They beat us 88-55. Clark stuck around for an hour and signed autographs oh, for all the St. Ed's people. That's great. Yep. That's great to hear. I, that doesn't surprise me. And, you know, that 79, or, uh, oh, no, it would have been the 80-81 team. Eldon Miller had, I thought Eldon. that team was going to win the national championship, Coach. Eldon Miller was, uh, yeah, he, 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 everything, as you well know, Carmen, has to fall into place. Uh, everything, to, yeah, injuries. Staying eligible a lot of times, right. but most most likely, or most importantly, is the injury. So, uh, and the ball falling in the basket at the right time and staying out of foul trouble. Yeah, it was a tough team. It's a very good team. And they, I think they finished just a couple of games above 500. I mean, the center, I can't recall his name. He went to the Knicks. Um, do you recall that No, center? sir, I don't. Yeah, they had like three guys on that team that went to the NBA. Calvin Ramsey, I think, was on oh, that team. Oh, he was tough. He was what, very tough. What was wrong with Elder Miller? Was he not tough enough? Was he not vocal enough? X's and O's, what do you think it was? Well, it's fine. It, you know, that's a great question. You, you look at a guy like Eldon Miller. You look at a guy like Steve Fisher. Oh, yeah. These guys had great command of their teams. These guys that played for them would go through the wall for them. You don't, you don't have to be, but sometimes it works, like a Bobby Knight or a Gene Cady. You know when you come in, when they come into your home and recruit you, you know what you're getting. A guy like a, uh, an Eldon Miller or a Steve Fisher, their temperament was evidently met by the parents of the kids that they coached, and it clicked. And that's why they got the best out of their players. Being tough, I'm not really sure about that. I just know that he had great respect, and it's all about recruiting. The bottom line is recruiting, and if you don't recruit and you don't win, it's Katie by the door. Oh, Would you say that it's your toughest challenge as a coach? Is there what you get as it, like from the recruiters, or do you? What would you say is your toughest challenge as a coach on a day-to-day -day level? Well, I'll tell you this. That's another great question. As a coach, I play coach baseball, football, and basketball. I have to surround myself with good people, people that are respected, know the game. So when I walk into a home, I want those parents to respect what we're offering their son, what's more important to their child. So it's all about, re, you know, making that parent feel good about themselves and know that in the next four years, 
I've got your son or daughter in my best, in our best interest. Yeah. I'll never forget, you brought up Steve Fisher, and when uh, Bill Frader decided to go to ASU, okay, Bo was livid. <laughs> livid. And you remember him behind that podium. I want a Michigan man. Right. And he brought, you know, he elevated Steve Fisher to that role. And they end up, who'd they beat? The Seton Hall for the right. national title? Right. Seton Hall Pirates, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, Steve Fisher is one of the, cla- and again, I, I, I name in my book, Throwing Back the Chair, 15 outstanding coaches that I had great respect for. And out of the 15, 14 are in the Hall of Fame, and Steve Fisher's right at the top of the list. He had the command, the temper, and the respect of all of the people that talked. And he did well at San Diego State. Yes. Yeah. And now, thank God, he's you know health-wise, he's doing pretty well. And I believe the, his assistant, Dutcher, has taken over that position, and, and it's done a good job. Who was the greatest player you saw in the Big Ten during your time? Well, it's funny you mention that, Carmen, because I have to refer back to I picked the top. And I'm going to, I could leave it to the readers, but I, I, I think I'm going to share, I want to talk to you about the big dog. Oh, Glenn Robinson. Glenn Robinson, oh, in yeah. my estimation, Michigan. was the best. Purdue. Purdue. I mean, he Purdue was the me. best of the best, and there's not a thing he couldn't do, and you didn't even know he was on the floor. He, again, all, all the guys in the league were very respectful. I always say the kids are an extension of their personalities. But if you say that, we say, well, you must, Knights guys must have been crazy. No, they were more respectful than all of them. Mm-hmm. But Glenn Robinson, from the time the ball went up to the final end, he was very consistent. He'd rebound. He'd set picks. He'd score. He was just respectful. He was the best, in my estimation, in three decades in the Big Ten. Yeah, he was the best of the best. Still, you know, who was the best pure scorer? Uh, I'd have to say that, that, that there's a, quite a bit there. There's quite a number of guys that can uh, that could score. You know, you talked about Calvin Ramsey. You talked about Clark Kellogg. Scott Sky, uh, Scott Skiles was another one. Uh, he was small. Oh, he was tough. He was tough for Michigan State. Yep. You know, you, you talk about. I loved Larry Bird. Larry Bird's. I don't think Larry Bird personally. They talk about Jordan right on down. Larry Bird was a tough hombre. French Lick, Indiana? Yeah. Indiana State, really? He'd knock you out as well as look at you. And he was with Coach Knight for a few months. Exactly. A couple months. He was a tough, tough hombre, boy. And to this day, you know, uh, I still think he's one of the finest top five NBA history. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. You know, uh, Coach Knight gets a bad rap. All right. He was old school. One thing I want to bring to light, and a lot of people uh, don't know about this, or they may have forgotten about it, he gets such a bad rap, yet when Landon Turner got into his accident. <laughs> Landon Turner, exactly right. When Landon Turner got in his accident, how Coach Knight came to his defense he, and helped him out. That's exactly right. See, what you see on TV is one thing. What you see, be, what people don't know behind closed doors is another thing. Uh, he was, uh, he's a man's man, and I know, uh, you know, having a, a, a nine grandchildren, one playing college basketball, if there's a guy I'd want to play for, it would be a Katie or a Knight, because they're going to get the best out of this young man, they're going to get the best out of their staff, they're just, they don't, they're no-nonsense people, and Knight has done things that uh, are, are, he doesn't get enough credit for, I think. Oh, I love him. I yeah, could play he, for him, Coach Hayes. He's the best. Absolutely. In my book. 
so many coaches over the years have got caught with their hand in the cookie jar, you know, violation, NCAA violations. <laughs> How did Bobby Knight and Gene Cady kind of sidestep that? How did they get, you know, get the job done without having to go that route? I just, I just think, to be honest with you, it's all about values. I think it's the way they were brought up. I think it's the way that, you know, the, they were, you think about the Knight, Knight's background and Katie's background, they were always disciplined. They always surrounded themselves with good people. They had top-notch programs. Most people want to play at Purdue. Most people want to play at Indiana because you know you're getting the best of the best. So they're, they're smart people. Why would you get yourself in, in, involved in a, you know, with your hands in a cookie jar, so to speak? And you got to remember, I mean, Coach Knight, he learned from, you know, the best. I mean, he had Fred Taylor and Pete Newell was a dear friend sure. of his. Right. So he, he had co- and he coached at Army. More, who's more disciplined than those people? Yeah, and they Coach just, K was one of his guards. Exactly. So they, I just think it's the value system that they would been brought up on, and consequently, you know, if you played for him, you learned those values. Now, do you think he was too hard on his players later on, or I mean, how would you assess? Did he cross the line? Well, there's pros and cons. If you look thirty for thirty, and uh, my feeling is this. He did what he thought was best at the time that he did it. I think he, you know, he, he would look back, coulda, shoulda, woulda. We all look back at things we might have changed. It's all about wisdom, how you approach things. You know, experience is the best teacher. So I, I know in coaching, I just was just with him uh, just before the pandemic. He's still as sharp as a tech. He has his principles. If you violate the principles, you're gonna pay the price. I think knowing Bob, if he could have done changed things a little bit differently, you know, he probably would look back and say, "I should have, could have, would have." I know that. I know this for a fact. People he has shut out in the bat in the past. Now, as he gets older, he's bringing those people back to him, realizing, "Hey, I was pretty blessed to be able to do what I do, did, make a, a tr- tremendous change in college basketball. I am the man, so to speak." And, I, and I, I appreciate the people that helped me get there. And how many coaches can lead a team to an undefeated season? I mean, he had uh, Ken Penson. Who else was on that 76, team? 76, yeah. 75, 76. Yeah. And, Ray, you know, too hard on your players? I don't know. I mean. No, I have to bring it up because that is really the biggest criticism. Right. No, I, mean, I know. But you know what? If you got a cardboard heart, the JV court's over there. You go over there. Carmen, I, I have to say, my old man was like that with me. Sometimes I could take it. Sometimes I just get if, fed up with it. Well, no, but that's good. That, I know. That because being fed I, up, I, getting pissed off motivates no. you. Well, uh, here too, Ray, here, there, in, in 30 for 30, if, and it's, you can just, you can, you can pick it up on ESPN. There are guys that couldn't take it, and they left. Isaiah and, Thomas. And, exactly. And, and, and so consequently, if you can't take it, then, then you move on and bring in the next guy. But he's, you know, he's setting his ways. That worked for him. And, I, and I, I'm a firm believer in Bobby Knight. Is there a particular coach that on the sidelines really was a pain in your ass? <laughs> Honestly, a real pain in your well, ass in a negative way. You know, when we, when we go to ball games, if a game starts at 7.30, we have a pregame. You have to be in that arena at 6 o'clock. Uh, so consequently, you knew the personalities of coaches because you work seven or eight games. In the Big Ten, I would work 35, 40 games. So I knew the type of personality that I was up against. You're not going to change the way they are. That's what made them successful. So the good official listens with respect 
as much as he can with it, you know, without giving favoring one coach to another coach. But yeah, there were several of them that uh, were more vocal than others. So you, a uh, Bobby Knight, uh, a Raleigh Massimino, a uh, Gene Cady, they were very, very vocal. But I always said, if you're going to say something to me, say it out of respect. I'll listen to you all day. If you cross that line, I'm going to bang you up. And I bang them up quite a bit. I don't, I don't mind games, telling you. Out of all the games you've ever refereed, what was like one of the toughest calls you've ever had to make that you knew was the right call to make? Well, anything that like sticks in your mind, like uh, you, you, you referenced that one again and again. Oh my goodness. There, there, uh, to be honest with you, I, I was, there were so many bang, bang calls particularly in the last two minutes. You could work a perfect game and up until the last two minutes, and then you better put it in low gear. So we had a couple of block charges and we had a couple of basket interferences. You know, the list is really endless, but I can honestly say to you that I, I, I really felt that every game I walked off the court, I gave it 2,000%. Do you agree with me? No. Did you didn't like me? You know what? You'll get over it because I'm coming back. And I'm going to give you 2,000%. So it's all said and done. I want you to know as a coach, I gave it my best shot. How did the advent of cable television and the metamorphosis of, say, Big Monday on ESPN change your life? I mean, because games typically were on, I believe, Thursdays and Saturdays in the Big Ten when I was a kid, right? Right. And then didn't you start having games on Mondays, Monday nights because of ESPN? Well, that's again, Carmen. Uh, as you move up the uh, as you move up the ladder to become a Division One basketball official, particularly today, you have to referee nine days a week. I mean, they want you like yesterday. And consequently, I was an educator, and and I was blessed to be an educator for forty four years. And this, I, I was able to referee for forty four years also. The bottom line is. We always wanted to work the big games. You want to work on TV. And yes, that did change. That did change everything because most of the guys that were working Division One basketball, that's all they did. In my situation, I was blessed to have two careers. So I had to pick and choose when I could go. And that's where the single engine Cesta comes in and oh, yeah. fly it around the country and try to be back for school. And the last plane, the last plane I was in, I might tell you, crashed. But I'm lucky to be here to be alive to tell you about it. And we're not going to any more single engine Cessnas. But the bottom wow, line I didn't is... know that. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's called surviving the plague crash. We were very fortunate after the Indiana-Iowa game, national television, double overtime at Bloomington. Michael never told me that. <laughs> well, Iowa. Yes. Of all places, that's where Buddy Holly died. Well, no, we, it was at Bloomington. And in the, in the plane, you know, we just lost, we lost power and we were fortunate to, we crashed and we were able to walk away from it. And I, and, and I tell the story when I give my book sightings, it's funny now, but at that time it was like, oh my God, is this really happening? What year was that? Oh my, near the, it's probably the 19, uh, let me just out, uh, my, the second, my second last year in the league. It's got to be close to 14 years ago. Wow, I had no idea. <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by Gunzelman's Tavern. For more information, go to gunzelmans.com. Or if you'd like to place an ad on this podcast, go to gunzelmans.com and enter the contact us section and please enter your information there. All right, back to the show. 
what is like a, a good, like a good a game that comes to mind that like it wasn't a, a playoff game, it wasn't a championship game, but you you really did see something special that day. Like, well, I you know the, the game that comes up a lot is February twenty third, nineteen eighty five, and I was watching it live. Well, it, that's the game where obviously we talked about it earlier, Carmen. Where you know I wasn't in, even born Indiana. <laughs> Well, we'll show you some film clips. <laughs> but we're at Bloomington, two o'clock game, national television. They're going for the championship, and, and of course, they were going to get into the Big Ten tournament. That was a lot, but the seed was important. But never in our lifetime, you know, you go, like I told you about that pregame earlier, you know, you can go through a checklist of things. You're going to go through about throwing a chair? Come on. So when it happened, it caught all of us off guard. Because, number one, the biggest thing we had to do is get control back of the game. It took us probably about five or six minutes. I mean, he really ejected himself, Bob did that night. I mean, he knew he was dead wrong. And everybody says, Phil, did he throw the chair at you? And I says, look, there's saner people locked up than me. I would have caught it and thrown it back at him. And he knows that. Everybody laughs. But the chair did go across the floor. And it did stop five feet from the handicap section yes. of going into the wheelchairs. Can you imagine? So now there's all this chaos and people, I mean, they love Bob because he, didn't walk, he can walk on water there. So now they're all fired up because he doesn't want to leave. And now the, and it's all in this book. And I tell them when I do the book sites, he, the athletic director comes on the floor. He says, Phil, you didn't throw coach Knight out. I says, pardon me? I says, he threw himself out. Yeah. And, now, and now Bob doesn't want to leave, so I got to whisper to his ear. I said, look, it's, you know, you better circle the wagons here or we're going to have to call a game. Right. So he finally believed me and he left, but they were throwing dimes and nickels and quarters and yelling Bobby and Bobby. So finally we were able to get control and put the right man at the uh, uh, free throw line. And Was that Jeff Moe? No. Who was it? Uh, it was Iowa, right? No, this was Purdue. Purdue, Purdue. I'm Purdue. sorry. What? All right, I apologize. Jeff Williams. Yeah, he was a great free throw shooter. And the bottom Jeff line Williams. is, uh, yeah, the bottom line is, uh, he had to shoot six free throws, and he was a 90% free throw shooter. And sure enough, he makes two. <laughs> wow. But Purdue went on to win the game by, I think, I don't know, 14 or 15 points. But at the time, we had our hands full. But uh, the ball just wouldn't go in the basket for, for, for Indiana, so we had our hands full. Dan Dockich and Yui uh, Blop on that team? No, Yui Blob was before that. Was he? Okay. But he was he was a giant. Yeah. He was a giant, and he just shook his head. Whenever Bob coached Knights, he just shook his head because he, I know he feared Bob. But he was a pretty good player for that size. Uh, Phil Bola, our special guest. Uh, Throwing Back the Chair is the book. Now, Phil, let me take it in a little different direction. The integrity of an official is the most and paramount thing that are, there could possibly be. Have you ever witnessed anything that was um, something that you would be you'd frown upon? You know, like bending the rules more than they should or doing something completely unscrupulous. That does happen. Uh, it does happen, but I can tell you right now, uh, I, I was pleased, I was blessed because I certainly wouldn't tolerate it because again, sure. my values, my background, it just wouldn't happen because any, I don't care if it's a CYO game at St. Ed's or it's a, it's a Indiana Purdue game. You've worked hard. 
the game is all about the kids and the two coaches. You're there to control the game, make sure the rules aren't broken, although there's going to be whistles, that's part of the game. But the integrity of the game is the most important thing that we as officials, whether it be football, basketball, baseball, it has to happen. You cannot condone any of that. And we had that problem in the NBA. We had that problem with the NBA Tim with guys. Donahue. I'm sorry? Tim Donahue. Exactly. And those cannot be tolerated. That's, it it's ruins just not, the integrity oh, of the Oh, my game. goodness. Uh, people are, you know, question, you know, they say referees are a necessary evil. Yes, we are. That's part of, we know that going in. But when you see these things happen. Egregious. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's, it's a rotten shame. So the old cliche is you can't quote silence. You know, you if you have something to say, you say it to the coach and, you know, you use your head before you talk. And if there was something going on, it certainly would surface. But I could tell you, Ray, all the years that I was in the league, I never had any of that problem or I personally would have confronted it. It's yeah. as simple as that. Well, it, does, it scares you because you see so many games on TV. And oh, yeah. There's officials on, on doing the football game right now. You never know. Could they be compromised? It could happen. Oh, absolutely. And it has happened. Yeah. And it has happened. You talk about the scandal in baseball. Uh, they got to the players, let alone the officials. I mean, that's just, it's going it, to, it, I'm sure it's going to be tried in the future. That's you being a human being. See, you find a weakness and you try to you try to overcome that weakness. Yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate that, uh, but, that it has happened. But in my, to answer your question, it's never happened in my, in my uh, years in the Big Ten. If you were to change a rule in the NBA and in college, what rule would you change? You're, you're the man in charge of all the rules now. What would you change? Yeah, that's a great question, and that's answered in throwing back the chair. If I would be in charge of the, of the rules, it's the jump ball situation, the alternating process. Years ago, if the ball was loose and we dove for it, then we'd have a jump ball. Now, with this alternating process of the arrow, one team would get the ball even though, oh yeah, even though I took the ball away from the defensive man, I made a great defensive play, he dives for the ball, now we have a tie-up, we look over at the scores table, and it goes back to the team that lost the ball. Yeah, it makes no sense. No, let's go to this arrow and throw the ball up and do like we used to do years ago. That would be the biggest for, uh, for me. Now, as far as the three-point, you know, bringing out the, these kids are stronger. They can jump. They can dunk the ball. We were lucky to touch the ball back in the 60s, or yeah. touch the net back in the 60s. These kids can reverse dunk, you know. Yeah. So moving back, the, I'm, I'm all against moving the, the hoop up. Ah, no way. Keep it at 10 feet. Keep the free throw at 15. If you want to go 22, so be it. It was 19-9 for a while. Then it went to 21. Then it went to 22. These kids could adjust to that, but that's my biggest concern. Here's what I would do. I, I would um, I take away a, or add a foul and make the court wider. You would, you would, you would do it in overtime? No, no. I mean, you would I, add a foul as far as overtime? No, I think they should start out with an extra foul. You know, in the game, like they have five yeah, fouls now. You're saying that in the, if I go over, oh, just six automatically. Yeah, six automatically. Okay, that, that could probably, that might happen. Yeah, and then make the court wider. Don't make the, don't touch the basket. Don't make it longer, but make the court wider. Right, why would you make it wider? Because the guys are faster, bigger, and I just think that they need more room. And I think that would make the game more interesting because the three-point shot would be longer. I just okay. think because I just think they need more room. All right. That's what I I don't know. 
my, my, my plan would be to put like um, ropes around where like the out of bounds is. Instead of going out of bounds, they can bounce it off of the ropes, suplex a guy, and then dribble it down the court oh. and dunk it. Yeah. <laughs> kind of yeah. like they would in WWE. There you go. If you want excitement, no, or two basketballs at one time. And by the way, two basketballs can fit through the rim at the same that's, time. That's true. A lot of people don't know that. That's true. That's true. That's true. How did they come up with 94 feet for the length of the court? Why not, why not 95? Why not 100? Why 94? That, that, that question, I'm not real 100% sure. I, I wondered about that. Uh, you're going to have to talk to the inventor of this wonderful game of Doc, ours. Well, you know, the rules of James, Dr. Naismith. Yeah, the rules of, uh, James Naismith. Have you seen that documentary? Yeah. That 30 for 30? The YMCA. Yeah. Yep. Peach Bucket. Yeah, I remember. It's amazing how far we've come, huh? It is, and we have a, a referee like you on our show to tell us some of the great insights that no other referee in the world could tell us. And here's the best part, guys. We used to work this basketball games two-man. Yes. I mean, and these kids are strong, and they're fast, and they get that ball, and off they go. And I said to myself, you know what? We may need a third man. <laughs> and sure enough, here it comes. But each of the three men have a certain responsibility. I don't think they'll ever go to four. See, Unfortunately, college basketball tries to interpret what the NBA does. And there's pros and cons in that game versus our game. Our game, I think, right where it is right now is where it should stay. It's everyone loves March Madness. You talk about the World Series, you talk about golf, you talk about uh the NFL playoffs, but the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Stanley Cup players. There you go. Everything you're talking about. But when you talk about March Madness, was I was fortunate to, to work 20 consecutive years in a row. There's nothing like it. So our game is as, as well as it can now with this miserable virus. Hopefully behind us, it's going to resurface. All right, Phil. That that's exactly what I was saying. The court needs to be wider for the officials to be able to maneuver around as well. I think. Well. To answer your question, the the referees at the lead official, he needs to be off the floor three feet at minimum, so he has peripheral vision as the lead official. Then you have a center official, Ray, which is opposite the the scorers table, which should be a couple of almost just a little bit on the floor, and then the trail is the trails on the same side as the scorers table. He's completely out of any of the action, but he sees the basket appearance. He sees the carrying of the ball. He sees the five-second count. So they, as far as the officials are concerned, whether it's where it is now or wider, they're supposed to be out of the way. I, I just think they could see the play more if okay. it was wider. That's the only. That's my observation. I could I be wrong. It. I respect that. And I, and I think football is the same way. I think the, the field is should be wider, and they should have five downs, not four. Like Canadian football. They have three. Well, I mean three, excuse me, three. Yeah. Uh, they should have one less to make the field longer. Yeah, Coach, I, all I know is, I mean, I've got so many, and I know you primarily work Big Ten games. Um, I mean, I grew up a huge Big Ten fan. Um, when Dave Gavitt took over the Big East, right. you know, and then you saw, you know, Louie and Rowley and John Thompson. And, um, uh, did, you, did you ever work any games in the Big East? Were you ever at Fog Allen Fieldhouse? Right. I was fortunate. Most of the time, when I worked in the Big East, I was not a Big East official. No, I but, know that. Uh, but I mean, I, I was worked a lot of leagues. I, my main league was the you know the Big Ten, and of course, but I would work 
ball games at their arena with our two officials and maybe one of their guys, which is, you know, sometimes it's difficult to do. And that's agreed on before. But I worked a lot of games in the Big East. And, of course, like you said, Gavitt was the, he was the absolutely the guy that discovered that league. And it was a tremendous league. It was always nip and tuck which league was the best, right? Yeah. And, of yep. course, I, I think you'll agree with me. Year after year after year, cream rises to the top. It's the, it's the Big Ten. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's the Big Ten. And, then of course, with the tournament and all, we never say, I, I was fortunate to work the very first Big Ten tournament. We didn't have a tournament. Now you have this tournament and seven and eight, nine teams go. That's, that's unbelievable. And now we could talk another avenue about mid-major. You look at the Mid-American Conference, unfortunately, yeah. and now they have they have to win that tournament down at Cleveland State University, and those kids bust their tails just like the Big Ten and the Big East and the ACC, and only one team goes, maybe two. I don't like that, guys. I just don't like that. And I could be 21 and 5, and you come in and upset me, and you're going. And I may go to the NIT, and I busted my tail to get to the NCAA. Wants, yeah, you know, it's funny because um, uh, Kevin Mackey's 85 team. That's right. They were, I think they were 26 and 3. 85, and they, 86, yeah. They had to beat uh, Kevin Duckworth in Eastern Illinois in the championship with uh, AMQ-8, if you recall. AMQ-8, right. Yeah. Oh, they used my to call it the, They used to call it the Oil League. Yes. Remember? Yes. And, All right, ladies and had, gentlemen. Well, it, real quick, okay, had, they, had they lost to Eastern Illinois, they wouldn't have gotten that large. That's exactly right. Yep. That's exactly right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, at this time here on the Gunzel <laughs> cast, Carmen Angelo is going to stop. We're going to have Nucci's food pick of the week. And I have no idea what... Hold on a wait a minute. Joe McDonough. Joe McDonough. Our owner. The main man. He owns the show. <laughs> He's the main man. Joe, what is he eating? All right, Jeremy, translate into my. He's going to speak Spanish. <laughs> we didn't have any gravy, so I got him a shot of uh, maple syrup. Oh, hundo, something Maple. He's eating maple syrup. I just got canceled. So he's shooting a maple syrup. All right, are we live? Yeah, this is incredible. Typically, I do a gravy shot, but unfortunately, Joey doesn't have any gravy. Kevin, you got to hold his microphone for him. All right. All right, typically I do a gravy shot, but Joey doesn't have any gravy here tonight, so I'm doing maple syrup, and I can't stand syrup. I could have never grown up in Canada. But anyway. There's only 11 Fridays to Christmas. There's only 11 Fridays to Christmas, and that makes a big difference as I'm doing this. But as the Italians say salute, what do the Irish say? Salancha. Okay, here you go. Bottoms up. Oh, that is so gross. Jeez, oh, man. Oh, that's like a jam. Thank you. That's the water. This is just unbelievable. Oh, Phil. I oh, your head. my goodness. Um, Coach Bob, I am so sorry. No, go for it, brother. We, should, we forgot right. to bring the tarp out. Oh. That's on us. Go for it, buddy. Um, today, today we didn't really, I didn't want to go with the uh, traditional burger, so we gave you a jumbo Reuben. <laughs> okay, so now I am about to dive into the jumbo Reuben here at Gunselman's. And again, 21490 Lorraine Avenue, Fairview Park, Ohio. Get here for the Jumbo Reuben, the Burgermeister, which is the Burger of the Month, right? Okay. The Big G, the Short Ribs, anything you want. Joe, this is far too much food, but I'm going to put this microphone down now, and I'm going to take 
a bite of this. Like corned beef. I love corned beef. And Coach Boba, I got to tell you, this is somewhat like right off a National Geographic episode. Like Joe, after I take a bite of this, Joe will be picking fleas off my back. Oh, jeez. So, Jeremy, go ahead. Well, that's, that looks great, Carmen. All right, he's picking yeah, up the sandwich. Wow. Yeah. Got ourselves a little corned beef and a Thousand Island dressing medley going on here on rye bread. Oh, First boy. bite seems satisfying. Oh, look, look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Oh, look at that. He, oh my God. It's everywhere. Swiss cheese. This, this man needs Joe, a Joe, it's all over the place. Look at that. All over his clothes. My God. I mean, my lord, even the it women are watching massacre. this guy. <laughs> that is amazing. That, that corned beef is so well cooked. Corned beef is Dwayne C. Bubsy, class of 1978, Fairview High School. Oh, no kidding. He's chef here. All right. Probably went to school with your brother. All right. But uh, he, this is his recipe that he's been cooking wow. for the last 40 years. That is amazing. And, I mean, it's just so, it's it's cooked perfectly. Yeah, it's, it's not like a normal, like a slime and skin <laughs> slice for beef. This is a thick slice and grill. Oh, yeah. So it's hot all the way through. Melty cheese, Cleveland kraut. I'd say, you know, I got to say, uh, I actually mentioned to you tonight on um, WTAM, on Dennis Mamaloff's show, and Gunsman's. Um, I said, you got to get, well, he asked me, I was all fired up because I just, I got an extension on my taxes and I had to write a bunch of checks before I came here. And I dropped it in the mail. Obviously, it got to be postmarked by the 15th. So I was hot. Um, and we started talking. He goes, well, what do you got planned tonight? I said, well, I'm going to be in a better mood here shortly because I'm going to Gunselman's. And I thought maybe I'd do the Burgermeister again. But this is outstanding. You know, Carmen, you could have said you were going to be working with me. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, my God, not all of us are a big superstar like you superstar? are. Superstar? I'm not qualified to spread mulch. Are you kidding me? Use that term very loosely. Are you qualified to eat that sandwich? Absolutely, I am. So I'm going to let Coach Bova, Jeremy, and Ray take it away, and I'm going to enjoy the rest of this. All right, Coach. Uh, real quick, uh, wrapping up here, um, what would be the advice you would give to some young player? Anybody trying to look to get into the league, what would be your advice for them? That's a great question, Jeremy. It really is. And again, we try to cover this in throwing back the chair. If you're going to make the commitment to be a any college, any type of sports official, in this case, basketball, you have to have the support of your family. You have to have the support of your family, your wife and or your significant other, because there's a big time commitment to get to the next level and you're away from home most of the nights. You have to have an understanding uh, type of career where your supervisor and our boss understands what you are going through because that becomes, the basketball officiating becomes secondary so you don't want to make sure you don't miss your day at work. But as you move up the ladder, I think it's important that you, you set realistic goals. It's extremely difficult to be a sports official today, and mainly because, number one, you're away from home. Number two, the abuse that you might be taking. I remember when I was at St. Ed's working CYO games up Saturday and Sunday for $3 a game and working seven days, seven games a day, working $21. I thought it was really special. But the bottom line is 
when it's all said and done, Jeremy, you have to be able to come back to your family. And so often, because of not setting realistic goals, you lose that commitment. Your family's not there because you're constantly gone. You you may not see the graduations. You may not be where you're supposed to be for certain birthdays. So be realistic, set realistic goals, and uh, hopefully, you know, you become a good, a good sports official. Great question, Jeremy. It is. One final question, the block charge. The toughest call is for an official, at least from my perspective. You know, you see him coming down, and I've seen officials, you know, the guy gets plowed over in a lane, he calls it a block. Some guys call it a charge. What's your call on that? Well, the, the, the bottom line is, is you have to see the whole play. Today they have the arc where when I was officiating, Ray, they did not have the arc, so to speak, yeah. in front of the in front of the, the uh, baseline, the, uh, in front of the basket. Well, and the it's one down low too. Well, and if you are caught inside of that, then it's automatically, I believe, a block. Uh, if if you're outside, then it's a then it becomes a a judgment call. But in other words, if you're inside that uh, inside that arc. And you take the charge, then 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 it's, I believe it's a, it's an automatic block. If the your feet have to be planted, right? absolutely, feet have to be planted, right? And you can't be moving left or right. Uh, you have to, in other words, the, the player has to be set on defense. If the guy obviously runs over, him, it's a charge. So the, if it's a bang bang call, it's really imperative that you follow that procedure. Feet down. You can't be moving to the left or moving to the right, or you're going to be called for a block. But if you're inside that arc, now I believe it's automatically a block. We're here with Phil Bova. I'm Ray Carr, along with the hungry Carmen Angelo and uh, Jeremy Demry. Before we, we're going to wrap it up right now. Phil, tell us where you, the book, where you can get the book, and your next uh, talk. Well, the book is called Throwing Back to Cherry. We're really excited about the opportunity to, I personally, be able to share 44 years of my memoirs, the magical moments in Big Ten basketball, share humorous stories, the top 15 games. There are just so many wonderful things inside of this book that, I, that I'm thrilled to be able to share with, with the readers. The book is on Amazon.com. That's where it's able to uh, be purchased. Uh, by our, we have a number of book signings with referees and a number of book signings with community members. But our next book signing that I'm excited about will be on uh, November 27th at the Baseball Heritage Museum with two great outstanding authors, Mark Bona and Scott Larnjert. And that'll be between 11 and 2 o'clock, Baseball Heritage Museum, November 27th this week. The Saturday after Thanksgiving. And that's right at League Park. At that's right at League Park. And, and it's really a special venue out there. So I am really excited about the opportunity to share this, all these experiences with our, with our readers. You know, I've got to digress before we let Coach go. But um, I was talking with one of my old coaches at St. Ed's about um, my Sandlot days playing Ohio Hot Stove and how fortunate I was. And, Number one, we had one of the best baseball camps for nearly 50 years right here in the western suburbs of Cleveland in Coach Bova's camp. My son was actually there like four years. But um, I was so fortunate. You know, you were here. Um, I, I had the opportunity to be coached by Gary Roggenberg oh, and Richie Rollins. Wow. The best. You know, um, I mean, what we had right here in the, on the west side of Cleveland 
we were the most blessed kids really in all the country when you look at like a Coach Bova or a Richie Rollins or a Gary Roggenberg. Well, I thank you for your kind words, Carmen. We were fortunate that those two guys are icons and I was fortunate to coach baseball at Cleveland State University with Gary Roggenberg and it was, a, it was an honor and a pleasure and we were blessed to have the baseball, the Bova baseball camp for 45 years. And those two guys were an integral part of me getting started with the baseball school. And I'm thrilled that we could make a difference. We uh, we just had our big Sandlot Day a couple, two two weeks ago. And it was outstanding to see those guys again. And, and they're doing pretty well. But I appreciate your kind words because we. I always said if I could give back to college baseball or college basketball, I would do that. And I was blessed to be able to have those camps. You so did thank it for you. a long, long time. And we're so right. grateful. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Thank, thank you, everybody. Thank uh, you so much this is the Gunso cast, uh, Jeremy Demery, Carmen Angelo, and of course our special guest, Phil Bova. I am Ray Carr. We'll see you next time here at Gunzelman's on the Gunzel cast. <laughs>